in this morning, in the Gospel of John in the 11th chapter. The last time that we were in the Gospel of John, uh, right before Christmas, we had come into this chapter. This is the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And um, in the story, the story, he has only been in the grave for four days. But it's been several weeks since we've been here, and I counted, we've actually had him in the grave for 28 days. <laughs> and so this morning, we've got to get him out, all right? We've got to have a resurrection this morning, John chapter number 11. Because I have a long text, the story is long, I'm not going to read it at the beginning, but I will read it as I go through the different sections of the story. It is difficult to call any miracle in the Bible the greatest miracle because any miracle of divine power is great and there are no degrees of greatness in the works of Christ. We, we understand that. However, the resurrection of Lazarus does stand out to us as a unique and a very special miracle. It is the last time that Jesus performs a miracle publicly and it comes at a very critical time and a critical place in the ministry of Christ. It is significant to me that the miracle uh, is performed in Bethany. That's just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And it's just a little over a week before the crucifixion and then the Lord's own resurrection. And because the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have been very public about their desire to have Jesus killed... And because this miracle takes place in such close proximity to Jerusalem, because it becomes public knowledge that Jesus has actually raised a man from the dead, then this miracle becomes somewhat of a last straw for the religious leaders of Jerusalem. The reason why is because if there is anything that can cause unbelievers to finally believe, it is when he calls a man out of the grave that has been there for four days. But the reaction of the religious leaders, as we will see not today but another time, is to double down on their unbelief and to become even more determined that Jesus Christ must die. Now the scene in John chapter 11 takes us to a graveside. We are familiar with the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they have been acquainted with Jesus for some time. In fact, Jesus has even been a guest in their house probably a number of times during his ministry. And Lazarus, the brother, has fallen sick and he has succumbed to whatever sickness that he has and he has died. They have called for Jesus to come, hopefully to heal him. But Jesus tarried two days, and by the time that he gets there, Lazarus has died and Lazarus has been buried. In fact, from the time that Jesus was told that Lazarus was sick until the time that Jesus finally comes into Bethany, Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days. That sets the scene, the stage, for the miracle. And, and I imagine that, that most everybody here has had some close association with death, and death is our ultimate enemy. In fact, I thought that even as I preach this text, you will not be able 
to help but go in your mind to a graveside somewhere that you have been where you've had to bury a loved one or a close friend. None of us have control over death. None of us are going to win over death. Death is the final conqueror. And so it shouldn't be hard for us to place ourselves at the scene. And and I need you to do that. It's not a pleasant thought. In fact, it's almost taboo. But I want you to somehow go to a graveside in your mind because we have to gather there. You have to see the sadness and, and the mourning and enter into that if the resurrection is going to mean anything for you. Now, in Jewish customs, the Jews did not embalm bodies when someone died. And so that meant that they buried them as soon as possible. They would wrap the body in sheets of some kind of swaddling or some kind of cloth and maybe they would include a lot of ointments and spices and kind of things to keep the smell of the corruption down, but that is all that they did. And the word would go out that someone has died in the community and everybody that had any connection to that person would gather to the home of the deceased, their family, and there they would enter into a period of mourning. Since burial took place almost immediately, there's no waiting until next week for a funeral. The funeral was right now, which meant that everybody dropped whatever they were doing at that moment to come and to be with the family. They would meet at the family of the deceased, and then there would be a procession out to the cemetery or to the grave or the cave, wherever it might be, and they would have the ceremony and they would bury the body. And then the mourners would go back to the house where they would have a period of official mourning. In Jewish customs, it was for seven days. That was their time of mourning. And for seven days, the family could expect people to be coming and going and there'd be a lot of eating and there would be mourning. And when they mourned, it was a very public, a very uh, outspoken, if you please, kind of mourning. There there would be a lot of tears and sobbing and sailing and and wailing. In fact, sometimes they would even hire professional mourners. They actually were people that they would hire to come in to, to weep and to keep everybody else crying pretty much because they felt like that, that the best way to, to show their condolences was by mourning, by, by weeping. And, and the more that they did that, the more public that it was, and then, then the more comfort they supposed that it gave to the family. So for seven days you had people coming and going, sometimes even professional mourners, and it's seven days of wailing and weeping. So when Jesus comes four days later, they are in the middle of this seven-day mourning period. There are friends and their family gathered there. In fact, in verse number 19, it says, Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. We try to get funerals over as fast as we can, but that was not the case in Judaism. When I was thinking about this, by the way, I, I, I had a little side thought that really is not related to the message, but it's a good place to put this. I think that one of the measures of a good church is how that they respond in times like these. In today's economy, oftentimes a church is measured by how well it entertains the young people. 
I think a better barometer of a healthy church is how does it take care of the older people. I, um, it's not in having every program to attract the young people, but it's having the sympathy and care for those in time of trouble, those in time of transition. How, how does the church take care of the sick? How does the church take care of people that are experiencing the worst times that they've ever had? I think that's a better barometer of a church than what does it have for the young people. I, 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 again, it's not in the text, but I, I just put it in there just, just real quick. So Jesus leaves where he is with his disciples and he makes his way to Bethany. There is sadness and there is grief, but there is also some doubt and uncertainty about his own actions. Why did he wait? Why, why didn't he come right away? We preached a month ago, he whom thou lovest is sick. If you loved him, why is he sick? And why didn't you do something about that? And so he comes into this little village of Bethany where he's going to meet Mary and Martha. He's going to resurrect Lazarus from the grave, and he interacts with these three siblings. And I, I want to frame the story around his interaction with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And if I was to put a title to this, I would call it, Jesus is right for whatever's wrong in your life. Because all three of them have a different need, and they found out that Jesus is the answer to all of their needs. And, and all of us come into church this morning and we all have different needs. But for whatever is wrong in your life, I promise you, Jesus is the answer. We're going to pick the story up in verse number 17 and I want you to see, first of all, answers for Martha. Look at verse number 17. Read the text with me if you would. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, Whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As Jesus approaches the village, the word gets to Mary or to Martha that, that Jesus is coming. There's a house full of people and she's been busy tending to those guests, but she quickly slips out the back door and hurries up the road to meet Jesus on the outskirts of town. In fact, she doesn't even bother to tell Mary that Jesus was coming because Mary doesn't find out until verse number 28. 
And we remember an earlier scene in this home, early in the Gospels. You remember when Jesus was in the house and Martha's serving and Mary is worshiping. And the Bible says that Martha was cumbered about with much serving while Mary worshiped at the feet of Jesus. And whenever that story is preached, Martha usually gets the brunt of the criticism from preachers because she is serving while Mary is worshiping. And Jesus said that she has chosen the good part. And most sermons makes Mary out to be a better Christian than Martha. And Martha is just a grumbling old woman. And I don't know that one is better than the other, but they are two different people. Martha's natural inclination is she wants to get it done. She's active. She, she is busy. Mary has a more reflective, more of a quiet, more of a waiting spirit. I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. I certainly don't want to cast somebody the Bible in worse light than what the Bible does. So I'm a little bit hesitant to join in all of the criticisms of Martha and her reputation is that of serving. That's her reputation. By the way, that's a good reputation to have. She, she is a worker. She is busy. She is getting things done. If somebody says of you that you are a servant, that's a good thing. In every church, this one included, we know that when there is work to do, we pretty much know who is going to do it and who is going to be running away. Everybody knows that. And our Lord never rebukes Martha for serving. Right? It never rebukes anybody for serving. And so if somebody says to you that you are a hard worker and you'll get the job done and you serve others, then, then I say that that is a compliment. By the way, this is not a sermon on laziness, but if it was, this would be a good place to put this in here. Laziness is a great curse to have on your life. I'm not saying that you are, but if you are, you ought to determine not to be anymore. And if you don't get anything out of this sermon except that I'm not going to be lazy anymore, then it will have been well worth the admission ticket for you getting in the door today. So, sometimes it's hard to get things done. Sometimes it's hard to get motivation. The alarm clock this morning rang at 3.30. And i got to be honest with you, I didn't want to get up. I wanted to stay in bed. But I, I had to make my flesh just be submitted and, and just get up and get going. And so if, if we just walk away and determine that we're not going to be lazy, then, then it was a good message is what it was. For every criticism that Martha has gotten from preaching over the centuries, I want to give her some credit for working. And she is hospitable. Because the Bible says in Luke chapter 10, in that story, that, that, that Martha received him into her house. Her house. I don't want to make any more out of that than what it is, but it is her house. And if it is her house, she could have said, I don't feel like company today. I mean, 13 men, Jesus and the 12 disciples are on her doorsteps and she could have just given them a glass of water out the front door and said, come back next week. But she brought them into her house. So she might be bothered in her spirit and she's stressed out, but that doesn't mean that she's not a good woman. In verse 20 in our text, it says that as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. So she runs out and she meets the Lord Jesus on the outskirts of the village and in her heart she has a lot of questions. She's prone to anxiety. She is prone to worry about things, trying to 
figure things out. She wants answers is what she has. And in her mind, there is nothing that can be done about Lazarus, but there are some questions in her heart. So in verse 21, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not I don't think that's a rebuke. I think it's true. I think it is a statement of faith. Lord, if you had gotten here sooner, there is no doubt in my mind that you could have healed my brother senior power too many times and, and, and I know that you could have, 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 have ordered the sickness out of his body and he would have lived. That is a very true statement. If you had been here, my brother had not died. Jesus answers her in verse 22. Or, or, I, or, or in verse number 22, she continues. I know that even now, Whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Now you show me a stronger statement of faith in the Bible than that right there. Huh? And, and she's not asking, I, I don't think, I don't think that she's that she's saying that she believes in an immediate resurrection, but she is saying that although my brother has died, I still believe God. Here's what I want you to see. The tragedy of her life has not shattered her faith. They are four days into the morning season. She still has a lot of questions, but her faith four days into the trial is as strong as it ever was before. I want to tell you, Martha has great theology. In fact, look at verse 23. Jesus says, thy brother shall rise again. Martha says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She believes in a future resurrection. Verse 27. She said, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. She believed in Christ as the Messiah. She has good Christology. She has good eschatology. And it's really remarkable when you read what she says, her theology. She believes in the Lordship of Christ. She believes he has the power to heal the sick. She believes he is the Messiah sent down from heaven. She believes in a future resurrection of the dead because she's been reading Job and Daniel. That's in her Old Testament scriptures that says that. And it's interesting that the two main religious bodies in Judaism was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees believed in a future resurrection. And the Sadducees did not believe in a future resurrection. And they debated back and forth about that. But despite their debates in the synagogue, she believed. So here's Martha. She's just buried her brother, questions crowding her mind, and she still has faith. She has not allowed the tragedy of her life to cause her to abandon what she knows to be true. There are some things I may not understand that does not change what I know is absolutely true. I am not going to doubt in the darkness what I have discovered in the light. And right now, the only thing to cling to is that there is a resurrection in the future and one day Lazarus, my brother, will live again in the last day and I'm not going to allow that single truth to be taken away because that's all that I have to hold on to. In verse 22, it seems that there is just a tiny 
sliver of hope that Jesus could raise Lazarus even now. Because she says, Whatsoever thou would ask of God, God will give it thee. She, she doesn't ask him to re resurrect Lazarus. Because in so many words, we ask you to heal him. And he didn't. So it wouldn't make any sense now to bring him back from the dead. And I believe if you could interview Martha, Martha would have said, yes, I, I believe that Jesus could raise my brother from the grave, but I don't believe that he is going to. I, I, I don't see how that's going to happen. It wouldn't make any sense because he could have stopped him from going into the grave in the first place. So when Jesus says, thy brother shall rise again, here's what she says. She says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Last day. That's what she's thinking in her mind. She has no I did no clue. Even when Jesus says, roll the stone away, she still is not thinking right now. She's thinking a future resurrection. Right. So here's what I, want you to, what I want you to know about her. She has her faith, even though she also has her hurts. And have you ever had the two mingle in your own heart? When the trial of your life is not able to steal the truth out of your heart. It's taken away the peace, but not the truth. Last month when we buried my little grandbaby, it still didn't change any truth in the Bible. I still believed what I have always believed. It hurt my heart to go through that, but I still believe. Anna lost her baby last week. It, it didn't change anything in the Bible, but it cast a shadow over what was in our heart. You, you have been there. I can still quote the same verses. I can still affirm the same truth. I can still preach the same sermon. But why? Why didn't you come? Why did you allow that to come into our life? You see, in everything that Martha says, there is a question. She doesn't demand answers of Jesus. But if you listen to her, you'll hear that there are questions in her heart. And here's what I love. I love how that Jesus answers those questions. He doesn't teach her more about the doctrine of the resurrection. In fact, he doesn't even say, don't worry, Mary. I'm gonna, Martha, I'm going to fix this. Just give me a minute to get out there. He doesn't say that. Here's what he does to all of her questions. Here's what he does. He tells her more about him. Look at, look at it, verse 25. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Hey, the answer to all of her questions is Jesus. Martha, I know about the situation, but could we take just a minute and can we just talk about me? What you believe about a future resurrection is not going to get you through this trial, but do you still believe in me? She already believed, but do you still believe? And I want to say that I may not know the why, but I do know the who. I may have questions about life, but I don't have any questions about Jesus Christ. And when questions and doubts crowd our mind, we run to Jesus because all of our assurances, all of our comfort, all of our answers are found in Him. 
The one constant in my life is Jesus Christ. No matter what tomorrow holds, he remains the same. And his love is constant. And his mercies are new. And his faithfulness is to generations. And I may lose it all, but I still have Jesus. Friends may forsake me. Family may oppose me, but I still have Jesus. Martha, I know you have questions about the resurrection, but do you have any questions about Jesus? I know that your faith has been shaken, but do you still believe what you believe about Jesus? I wish I could get an amen out of this crowd. And isn't it precious that we can always run to Christ? Even with tears running down your eyes, you can still see what a friend we have in Jesus. Even with a heart that's crushed and broken with trials, you can still see I must tell Jesus. Even with fears and anxieties and uncertainties, we can still see, does Jesus care? I know he cares. Martha needed answers, and her answers are in Christ. But then we come to the second interaction, and that's with Mary. And with Mary, it is affection that she needs. Look at verse number 29. Verse 28, when she had so said, she went away, called Mary, her disciples, her sister secretly, saying, The master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly, came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but he was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have ye laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept, then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. So Martha has displayed remarkable faith. In spite of what preachers say about her, her faith is very strong. Her doctrine is correct, but her heart is drawn to Christ. It's not so much about what she believes about the future, but what do you believe about Jesus Christ right now in this situation? But then Jesus says, what about Mary? How's Mary holding up? How's Mary doing? I had a preacher this morning call me. He said, how's your mom and dad doing? How how are they holding up? Mary said, um, Jesus said, uh, Let's go get Mary. I'd I'd like to talk to Mary. So Martha goes back to the house, whispers into Mary's ear, The master is come and calleth for thee. Mary's more reserved. She's more quiet. She's probably more melancholy. And Mary has taken the death of her brother very, very hard. And here's what you find. People grieve differently. Some people cope by occupation. Being busy, just, just got to get at it. Other people grieve by sitting and reflecting and remembering. Some people weep silently. Other people sob publicly. People grieve differently. And Martha grieved, but, but it's different than that of Mary. To be honest with you, Mary is going to have a harder time picking up the pieces going on with life. She will, but it's going to take her a little bit longer to do that. And so Mary tries to slip away, but everybody's watching out for Mary. Mary's fragile. And when Mary leaves the house, they assume that she's going out to the grave, and they're going to go with her. We're not going to leave Mary alone. And they go out with Mary. 
There's an interesting thing that when you come to Mary in the story, there is a very strong emphasis on weeping. Look at verse 31. The Jews, them which were with her in the house, and comforted her. The last part, she goeth unto the grave to weep there. Verse 32, or verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. It's been four days. She still can't stop crying. She's not sleeping. She's not eating. The grief is as strong as a physical pain. And Martha's heart is overwhelmed with questions. She needs answers. Mary's heart is overwhelmed with sorrow. Tears are like that. Tears are something that we all are familiar with. You may be the sort of person to not let anybody see you cry, but you've cried. You've cried in the darkness. You've cried in the night. In fact, of all of God's creatures, only man has the ability to laugh and cry with emotions. Animals have tear ducts. They can shed tears, but it's to lubricate the eyeball. It is never an expression of emotions. Man has the ability to weep, shed tears as an expression of what is in his heart. And all of us have a life full of tears. The Bible talks about how it has a bottle for our tears in the book of Psalms. And you question why tears? Why tears? And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why there are tears. For one thing, tears makes us homesick for heaven. There is nothing that will make us more willing to leave this world for another world than the tears of sorrow and trouble. If there were no tears of sorrow and heartache, then all of us would be perfectly content to stay right here. Even with heaven beckoning us, we would be satisfied with this world if it were not for tears. It is the nights of the earth that make us desire a land where there is no die. It is the tears of this life that makes us desire a land where there are no tears. It is the sufferings of this life which makes us long for a land of which there is no suffering. And something has to be done in our heart to make us willing to quit this existence. If it were not for trouble, then this world would be a good enough heaven for all of us. We would be willing to take a leash on this life for the next million years if it were not for tears. But after a man has had a good deal of trouble, he says, I am ready to go. If there is a house somewhere where the roof does not leak, I'd like to live there. If there is an atmosphere somewhere where there is no cursing and uh, anything to distress the lungs, I, I would like to be there. If there is a, a, a place somewhere where there is no cursing, I am ready to go there. No man wants to leave this world until he is sure that there is a better world out there and to cure that desire to stay here. God puts tears in our life. And so the old man, the old man used to read the first part of the Bible, but now he reads the last part of the Bible. He used to be anxious to know how this world was made. Now he's more interested in how the new world is made. He used to read about in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, but now what thrills him is I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's what tears does for us. I tell you what tears do. Tears makes us dependent upon God. Somebody has said that man can see God in the darkness of tears when he cannot see him in the sunshine. 
A man who's never had tears doesn't know anything about humility and meekness and sympathy and dependency on God. In fact, I can tell listening to a man pray if he's ever had any trouble. Can't you? I can hear it in his cadence. I can hear it in his phraseology. A man who has never had any trouble in his life, his prayers are poetic. He begins way up yonder in heaven informing God of information he must be gratified to know. And eventually he makes his way down to earth and ends with a big flourish and forever and ever amen. And how God must be impressed with how he crafted his prayer. But after a man has had some trouble, after he's had some tears, he forgets all the poetic language and prayer to him is just trying to grab out to God, crying out for some help. You can tell if he's had any trouble in his life. Tears teaches us the grace of sympathy. We live in a cold, cruel world where it seems like we've lost the ability to sympathize with other people. Everybody's watching out for their own interests. It doesn't matter who I have to walk over to to make sure that I get my fortune in this world. But here's what tears will do. It'll tenderize your heart. And to give you some grace or to give you some sympathy, it takes people who have had trouble to comfort people who are in trouble. All of us have had a life of tears. And the longer that you live, the more tears that you will cry. So how precious the promise of Revelation 21 and verse 4 that one day God will wipe away all tears. I know not when, I know not how, but this I know, that one of these days we're going to a land of eternal bliss where no man cries anymore. I think of the tears of a young man jilted by the dream of his life. and We know that he will get over her, but there are tears. I think of the tears of the young mother who takes her baby from the crib to the casket and feels for the first time what sorrow is all about. I think about the tears of the man that sits in the rented apartment alone. His drunkenness having broken his home up and his wife divorcing him. I think of the tears of the shattered father as he watches his son go to the penitentiary for some crime he has committed. I think of the tears of a loving father as he stands with his little children by the graveside of their mother and his wife. I think of the tears of a hardened sinner lies on his deathbed afraid of what's lied beyond that last breath. Nobody likes to weep. But God uses tears to make us homesick for heaven, to be dependent upon Him, to give us sympathy for those who are hurting. But in that land of endless day, God will wipe away all tears and all reason for tears. No tears of misfortune and no tears of poverty and no tears of loneliness and no tears of sympathy and no tears of regret and no tears of yearning. But here comes Mary. She comes down the desert road to where Jesus is and she is still wiping tears. Twice it says that she is weeping. Once it says that they are weeping with her. And when she comes to Jesus, she says the exact same thing that Martha said. Lord, if thou hast been here, our brother would not have died. Martha and Mary have been talking about it. That has been the question on their mind. And she comes and she says the exact same thing. And it's not angry. It's not bitter. It's not accusatory. But, but, but there is no comfort in living in the land of what if. 
What if this had happened? What if you, there's, there's no comfort in that. And here's what's interesting to me. Jesus does not engage her in a theological conversation like he did with Martha. She asked the same question, so he could have just said the same thing to her that he said to Martha. He didn't do that. In fact, he doesn't even raise the prospect of a future resurrection with her. He doesn't tell her what he has told Martha. He approaches it differently, and here's the reason why. Because Jesus knows what's in the heart, and he's going to deal with what's in the heart. He barely speaks to her. You know what he did? He took her hand. He embraced her. And verse 35, he wept with her. The Bible says in the verse 4 that he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And the question is always asked, why did Jesus weep? That's always the question. That's the answer. Why did Jesus weep? He is getting ready to go to the cemetery. He is getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he's not crying for Lazarus. So why did he weep? I have heard every answer except the right one. And I'll tell you the right answer. He wept because she wept. His heart broke because her heart was broken. He knows in a week that he's going to his own grave. And maybe some of that is weighing on him. But I tell you, I think that he wept just to weep with her. <laughs> the mystery of humanity comes before us right here. The Greeks, they describe their gods as apatheia. Apatheia, which is where we get our word apathetic from. No compassion, no, no sympathy. The, the deities were apatheia. They had no, they had no ability to feel compassion or empathy or sympathy for any of their subjects. That may be pagan, but that is not Jesus. He is not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He has felt every pain that you have ever felt. He's the man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. He's a sympathizing Savior. He wept with her. Hollywood paints all of our heroes as heroes that never cry. The cowboy, the soldier, no matter what they go through, they never cry. They wince, they grimace, but they never weep. Because somehow crying has become, it's not masculine. So a real man never cries. He's strong, he's stalwart, he, he's rugged, he, he, he's going to hold out. And he may, may even die, but he's not going to show any emotion. But Jesus sobbed in his spirit. Tears came out of his eyes as he saw the pain in Mary's eyes. He stood at the grave of Lazarus knowing that in just a few minutes I'm going to perform the greatest miracle that any man has ever performed. And he still wept. Not weeping for Lazarus. He's weeping because of their broken heart. When they, when they, when they falsely accuse him in, 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 in the Sanhedrin, he doesn't weep there. When they beat him with the scourge and, and they pluck his beard out, he doesn't weep there. When they nail his hands and his feet to the cross, he doesn't weep there. He never wept once for his own suffering, but he wept for their suffering. What broke his heart was not the pain in his heart, was the pain in their heart. 
I, I think of the great, great song that we sing. Does Jesus care when my heart is pain? Too deeply for mirth and song. When the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. My heart is touched with his grief. When the ways are weary and the days are dreary, I know my Savior cares. It might be that you need answers. He has the answers for you. But it might be affection. You say, where's the affection? When life causes you to cry, know that Jesus is up too. And I love back in chapter 11 and verse number 3, it says, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Look at verse number 36. Then said the Jews, behold, how he loved him. I'll tell you, if you want somebody to know that you love them, just weep with them. Just weep with them. Mary doesn't need the doctrine as much as she needs the affection. Just to know that Jesus loves me and cares for me and is walking with me is enough. There's answers for Martha. There's affection for Mary. That's the third interaction. It's with Lazarus. And I had trouble with this, and I texted all the young preachers last night. And said, help me with the outline. And they were totally useless. <laughs> but I got it. But I got it. There's an awakening for Lazarus. I'll explain the word to you in just a minute. Look at verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, coming to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take you away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. And Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. And they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people that stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. When he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, loose him and let him go. Now you have to understand there's a week of worth of preaching right there. Amen. But I'm going to skip a whole bunch of it. There's a crowd that follows Mary out to where Jesus is, and Jesus says, let's go visit the graveside. Usually there would be a cave that would be designated for burial. They would go into a deep cave and they would carve out benches or ledges along the side of the wall and they would place the body there. And, and then they would roll a barrier like a great stone to the mouth of the cave, presumably to keep animals, grave robbers out. And we know that because there is a stone from the grave and the Bible says it was a cave and a stone lay upon that and that is the situation the stone has to be moved away in order for Lazarus to come out. And it would be near impossible to describe this scene. Jesus tells them to roll the stone away. They protest corruption has already set in. It's been four days. It's going to be an awful, awful stench. Because at this point they have no expectation of a resurrection. But at his word they roll the stone away. Jesus cries with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And that corrupted body in the grave is not Lazarus. He's not there. Right? 
in the Old Testament, which technically we are still Old Testament saints. Old Testament saints went to paradise when they died, which was in the heart of the earth. So we understand that that shell is not Lazarus. That's just his body in the grave. He is somewhere in the great beyond is where he's at. <laughs> I, I want to preach this. I can't. So, so when Jesus cried out, he's not just crying into the cave. Okay. His voice is reaching much farther than the cave. He is calling in paradise. To the nether regions of the beyond is what he's doing. His, vo his voice reaches all the way into paradise. And I think that when he cried out that every voice of the Old Testament saints heard him. Amen. Which is why he had to say Lazarus. Because otherwise they'd all come out. <laughs> the master is calling for someone. Lazarus. Come forth. And with just his voice, the soul and the spirit of Lazarus comes out of paradise, re-enters into that body, and brings that body back to life. Now, I cannot describe the pathology of what happens to a body in four days of corruption. I, I read this week on it, and to be honest with you, I have a weak stomach and I didn't want to read anymore. I certainly was not going to come to the pulpit and describe those things to you, but you can imagine, use your imagination, four days with no embalming, that is the situation. But you don't think that Lazarus came out of that grave in that four-day corrupted state, do you? Huh? No. Whatever... <laughs> I want to preach it, but you don't want to hear it. Whatever was happening to that body in those four days, when Jesus, when Jesus called his spirit back into his body and told him to come out, he reversed every he re, he reversed everything that that corruption had done to him. In fact, I would suggest I'm, I'm going somewhere. I would suggest to you that he came out better than he was before, because before he was sick, sick enough to die. But he's coming out not with the sick. He he's coming out better than he was before. What he needs is life. In fact, in Jesus' words, what he needs is an awakening. Look back in verse number 11, all right? These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought he had spoken of taking a rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Jesus spoke of his death as sleep. And the thing about sleep is you always wake up. And you usually wake up rested and refreshed. And I know that Lazarus' resurrection foreshadows Christ's resurrection, and it even foreshadows our own resurrection. In just a little over a week, Jesus himself is going to go into a grave. And three days later, he's going to resurrect himself. I don't have time to get into that. And we may have to lay our loved ones in the grave, but if they know Christ, they will come out of that grave just as sure as Lazarus was called out. But there's a picture here, and I'm done. The Bible describes a sinner as dead in trespasses and sin. 
If you're here without Christ, your condition without Christ is considered dead spiritually. The spirit of man is that part of you that connects to God. Man is a trichotomy, body, soul, spirit. That spirit is that part of you that connects with God, but your spirit is dead because of your sin. Here's what it means. You can't reform yourself, or you can reform yourself, but you can't revive yourself. You can turn over a new leaf, but you cannot create a new life. You'll never have victory over sin. You'll never have intimacy with God. You'll never have fellowship. You'll never have peace. You'll never have heaven because you are dead. And I tell you something about a dead man. A dead man can do nothing to save himself. The Bible uses that language to tell you that you are helpless. There are no works. There's no charity. There's no religious activity that you can do to remedy your dead condition. You can be religious, you can be a good person, you can be benevolent, but you are dead. And, 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 and the stench of death is on you. Sin corrupts your heart, corrupts your mind, your desires, it corrupts your will. If you look all around you, you see the stench of sin in our society. The only hope that you have is a resurrection. The only hope that you have is for somebody to call into your dead spirit and create new life. Sitting all over this auditorium are men and women who at one time were dead. Some of us were children when we got saved. Corruption had not really set in that much. Some of us were adults. We had lived hard lives of sin and corruption was all over us. Some of us had worked hard to cover up the stench with morality and all, but, but the corruption still worked. But one day, one day the voice of God called into our soul. There is a quickening that enables a man to respond to the voice of God. And we heard and we responded to that call. And he brought us out of death and he brought us into life new life, His life, eternal life. And we stand here today alive in Jesus Christ and alive forevermore. And you can't tell now because the stench of corruption has been taken away. The corruption has been reversed. In fact, I would even say that we're in a better shape now than we were before we got mm, better now than we were before we got saved. There's not a person in here who would say that I was better before I met Jesus. If you have come to Christ, you have heard that awakening in your soul. And if you're here this morning, you've never come to Christ. You desperately need that awakening. You can reform your life. You can clean some things up. But all that you're doing is dressing up a corpse. That's all you're doing. It's not a reformation you need. It is a resurrection you need. And the only person that can do that is Jesus Christ. So how many of you have found down and come? How many of you found that Jesus is right for whatever's wrong in your life. He comes to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the grave, but also to minister to Martha and Mary. And each one of them had a different need. And Jesus is the answer to all of their needs. He's the answer to your need as well. Heads by eyes closed. Would you bow your head for just a minute? Heads by eyes closed. And it's going to play.